Decorating Pages is a podcast dedicated to taking you behind the scenes of the designs of your favorite TV shows and films. Each episode, I'll be sharing design stories from some of Hollywood's most famous sets, interviews from set decorators, production designers, directors, and actors about creating the look of TV and film, about their design inspirations, and stories that take sets from page to screen. Hello, and welcome to Decorating Pages. I'm your host, Kim Wanup. How are you? How's summer going? I know, been a few weeks. It's, uh, my summer's going great. I mean, I'm, in, I'm working through it. Working like a dog through it. Uh, it's, uh, it's really funny because when we started back on American Crime Story in August last year, uh, we were like the only people on the lot and it was like eerie and then we know shows start coming back like 911 and Orville and like oh you know a couple other shows on the lot on the Fox lot and sports and everything and then it was like crowded couldn't get a parking space in that structure and then little by little you know it starts shows go down and I keep thinking to myself wow I am still here shooting <laughs> And we're not even on episode 10 yet. So that's cool. <laughs> I have no idea when I'm going to be done this. It's like ongoing. I mean, I don't even, I, it, I, I don't know. It's great in a sense that I'm working and I love my job. I say that to me, myself, a million times a day. I love my job. I love my job. I hate to work. I love my job. <laughs> um, I'm sure a lot of people in a, a lot of different uh works a lot of different occupations have that feeling but um yeah I used to like kind of when I was on bones and I'd kind of have like a summer off like I'd have like May and June a little bit of July off it's almost like being a teacher or something you, I knew I was gonna have like two and a half months off or something but now I've Never know when I'm going to have off. <laughs> um, I don't even know if I'm going to have off Saturday, Sundays on this show. It's crazy. But that does leave me some time to uh, start voting because there are some awards coming up, which Emmy voting started last week. If you're an Emmy voter, please uh, go to emmys.com and log in. They've sent you plenty of emails with links just to log in and see all of the content. and. Um, we're all bombarded with just for your consideration emails like all day long, um, which I've sent out. <laughs> I've sent out plenty of them too. And uh, voting is up until the 30th. So I think there's like five days left to vote, four or five days left to vote. Um, also, the SDSA awards are... Um, are up and running and their final voting opens um july 12th so the nominees have already been announced and so you have um voting between july 12th and july 23rd and then their awards are announced july 30th um i am on the sdsa uh tv awards committee and i feel bad because i don't have time to like give them a 
100%, which they deserve. So everyone who has gotten that together should have a round of applause because it's a lot to acquire all this information, get it together. And um, just the announcements were beautiful. And uh, we, uh, I'm, I'm thoroughly impressed once again with the SDSA. It's a great organization. If you are thinking of becoming a decorator, I have said it before. Join the SDSA. Get involved. You won't regret it. I mean, you could even look back and laugh about it of like, wow, yeah, that that was crazy. I should have gotten into that. That's cool. Um, but yeah, voting. Voting for awards is coming up. How fun. What's one up watching? Well, I'm listening to a shitload of stuff because I spent about eight hours a day in the car. Our locations are, I don't know, Thousand Oaks, then driving to Simi Valley, then driving to Burbank, and then driving to Woodland Hills. I mean, I'm not even shitting you. I drove over 500 miles last week, so I've had plenty of um, audiobook time, which I zoomed through Devil in the White City, which is about the 1893 uh, Chicago World's Fair. I think I have the date right. and. Um, H.H. Holmes, the first, like, noted serial killer. So each chapter, one is about Holmes, one is about the, um, the buildings and the architecture and the, and the landscape of building of the World's Fair. And it's really, as, a, as an architect um, fan <laughs> of architecture, fan of architecture, uh, it was really good just to listen to how these buildings were built and all of the problems they faced. And um, I never knew, you know, the, it was called The White City. And and then I love serial killers. So it was a good book. I would recommend that to uh, to anyone. I, uh, I watched Halston, production designer Mark Ricker, and decorator Cherish Howe. Phew. At first, I was like, whoa, this is like, uh, I don't know. I'm not really into it. And then, I don't know, it took a turn. Like, Ewan McGregor was just so good. And every scene he's smoking, and it's no, no, fuck you, fuck you, fuck no, no. Like, the attitude of this guy was just, like, so hilarious to me. And then, um... Yeah, I don't know. And the sets, I think, are fantastic. And um, I'm sure they replicated as much as they could. But just, I think, really good work on that series. And I thought the lighting was great. Um, so, and that's only five episodes. So you can bang that out. Um, an old one that I got into was RKO 278, which is an HBO film or a, like a long movie about uh, Orson Welles, who's played by Lee Shriver, who. It's it just is basically about his concept of wanting to do um <laughs> Rosebud, as it should have been called, I guess. Um, but wanting to do Citizen Kane. And I wanted to watch it because I kinda thought that's what Mank was gonna be. And um it's actually a very different story about Mankowitz in that movie than what Mank says it is. So it's interesting now to go back and watch that and see what their take on the relationship between Wills and Mank was. Um, but I really, I really like that movie. I, I have been a fan of it since I watched it years ago. And then all of a sudden it's on TCM because now I'm old and everything's on TCM. <laughs> all my favorite 80s movies are on TCM. Um, 
I checked out Clute because I had I think I saw that maybe once, and um, I, I it's good, but I think I just you I, I don't know. That's alright. I mean, I love Jane Fonda, love Jane Fonda, but um, and Donald Sutherland I think are really good, but uh, I don't know. I don't like it as much as I guess I think people love it for. Um, I keep throwing on Aviator. I know I've done a lot. Um, besides Housewives, people, I've been watching a lot of, a lot of, a lot of TV, a lot of movies, and then I did that whole ten-hour series of the um podcast. You must remember this, um, where she goes through the story of Polly Platt, who was a production designer turned producer, and um, she was married to Peter Bogdanovich, and basically was his muse and really tragic sort of life of, of things that happened to her and just a fantastic story about a woman in Hollywood and a talented person who never really got the credit. So if you if you really want to dive into some Hollywood history, I really recommend the You Must Remember This podcast. Um, 10 hours of that chick's voice was a lot. And then I start to think, how are you putting up with my voice? <laughs> but I don't overpronunciate. If anything, I, I even just in this past five minutes have probably mispronounced about 10 words. So <laughs> I, I hope, uh, I hope my voice isn't that annoying, but she's got great stories. So you got to put up with it. She does an enormous amount of research and gets great interviews. So I really like that podcast. Um, but yeah, the voice is something else. <laughs> On this episode, I speak with director Michael Uppendahl. Michael has a very interesting story of how he got into directing. Um, it really intertwines his passion from a young age, um, having talent and some good old-fashioned luck, as he puts it, which I argue with him about, but luck, that, that definition is uh, up for grabs, I guess. He is an award-winning theater director and has been directing hugely acclaimed TV series like The Walking Dead, multiple series uh, episodes of Mad Men, Turn, Legion, Castle Rock. In the last like year and a half, he's done like Hunters, Hollywood, Ratchet, Fargo. I uh, and I'm currently working with him on American Crime Story: Impeachment. I was just delighted when I learned that he had directed an episode of this past season's Fargo that was shot in black and white. And I remember just watching the episode thinking, well, well, this is brave. This is something different and really just great acting in that episode and something different. I love Fargo. I don't know why everyone isn't watching it. I think it's so interesting how they've intertwined all of these decades of the store of this you know the stories and I really love it um so Michael I should say is um probably submitting about three or four episodes um, for Emmy consideration so please keep that in mind his episodes of Fargo Ratched um I guess Hollywood and Hunters too I mean he's got a lot going on in the last two years yeah so I hope you enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Amen to Simon. I, I mean, 
my my work looks a hell of a lot better <laughs> with him as a DP. I gotta say that. So does mine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how? Let's start with how you started. Like, how did you get in? Did you want to direct, or did you want to work in t- like film and TV? No, I always wanted to direct since I was a little kid. I would. Uh, I grew up on a farm in Oregon, an onion farm, and I would. Um, oh, nice. Direct things in my barn and. I don't really know how I even knew there were directors, but I, I just always kind of did it. My dad likes to talk about me making, because there weren't many other neighbors in a farm, as with most farms. <laughs> and uh, when their friends would come and visit, you know, like a lot of kids would put on plays, and I would do that, and I would direct the other kids. And <laughs> he always talks about that, of like these kids who are like twelve, and I'm like four. I'm like you gotta go over here. Oh my god. <laughs> So I guess for some reason I just always, I always knew I wanted to do it, and I've been clearly fortunate to be able to do it. So yeah, I always wanted to do it. It's a drive. I mean, I I think with anyone who like has an intuition to do anything, you just figure it out. Like this is my passion. This is what I want to do. But it's really hard in Hollywood because it's not really up to you to do it. Like it's not like you could take enough schooling and then you're going to be a veterinarian. Like. Exactly. I know. Someone has to let you do it. Yeah. It. It's a, and, you it's know, if you're lucky, pay you. But even if you're not getting paid, someone has to pay for something. You know, you can't yeah, just... Yeah, yeah. That's actually why I started in the theater pretty much because of that. Because, you know, as a kid, I, I eventually did get a little camera and I would do little movies. But mostly it was like, well, theater you can do, you know. Right. For sort of free if people are willing to do that. And then I never really wanted to do black box kind of theater I would always do like I would wait till there was enough money to really blow on something and then do like a full-on play play because it was still a lot of money and difficult and everything but at least I knew I could do it if it was like well if we can get the set if we can get the people in the costumes and everything then this can be accomplished and done right and I never thought I just I guess I always I also worked in a video store in high school and I watched a bunch of uh, movies that to try and get the idea of well, what do you have to do and be, and I determined that you've got to know how to how the actors are great. You know, you have to figure out how to direct actors because, no offense, but it can look like shit if the performance oh, is great. Absolutely. And, and the opposite, we all know, is true. You can make the most beautiful set you've ever seen and have Simon or whoever shoot it immaculately, and it's just hollow, and nobody can even remember what the hell happened because it. There was nothing to really grab you by your soul, you know, whether it's funny or heartbreaking or whatever. It's distracting because there's nothing there for the viewer to get into, in a sense. Yeah, I feel like you can't, it just doesn't resonate. It makes me think of, there's a John Steinbeck quote um, in East of Eden where, I don't know if you've ever read it, but there's a whole obsession about the Cain and Abel story and how it's one of the most long-lasting living stories that we have but it's about a guy who kills his brother and how many people can really relate to that, you know, okay. but what are we, the, the thing I was remembering is he says, if the hearer does not see himself in the story, he will not listen. Hmm. Which of course, she as well, but that was how it was in the book. <laughs> and uh, so what are we seeing in that story? You know, like right. none of us really relate to it and it's only 16 lines long and everything. And I just thought, there's certainly something in there that, you know, grabs us all because there's, it's a very sparse little tale. And that to me kind of equates, 
into what we do, where if you can't see yourself in something, then there's just nothing. It, but it doesn't also have to be your life or something that right. it's like, oh, yeah, like I know about, you know, whatever, Mary, Queen of Scots or something. Nobody can really relate to that so much anymore directly. But, of course, you can on some level. Yeah. Um, we keep making new movies every day. Yeah, there, there's some human tie of relationship or um, – and I think it when you get into, re- like, reaching out to the audience – and seeing like compassion with a situation, especially when it's something sad or humorous, that's that's in the direction of it. Yeah, that, you know that's. So I basically I went to theater school because I thought figure that out um, as much as you can, at least get on the right feet with the actors and build up from there. Right. That's the way I went at it. So you went. You did you school in Oregon? No, I went Oregon. down to uh, the USC School of Theater. Ah, oh, which, uh, right on. <laughs> yeah, it's the bastard offshoot of the cinema school, which yeah. is actually funded and cared for. <laughs> the <laughs> theater school at the time was pretty much a disaster, but it was great for me because nobody really cared what they were doing, you know. Well, that's even better. Then you weren't yeah. like under the, you were had more freedom. Yeah, and I got a scholarship. I mean, they oh, it was the only awesome. reason I could go. So it was... Great, and I was surrounded with these wonderful actors. It was a conservatory, so there were like 30 of us who agreed to devote ourselves to theater for the duration. And so there were lots of great actors running around and designers, and so I was able to cast them and and build great crews and learn more about how to excel beyond what I had done in the barn of uh, <laughs> you know costume design and set design and things like that. That uh, I learned a great deal there from mostly from the people I was with in school mm-hmm. but and there were a handful of really wonderful professors but mostly it was kind of a hands-on of a program really but right. i can't say you regret it because here i am right so do you almost like a sidebar i've i had friends who uh came to la to act and would try to do theater and the theater is just not really that great in Los Angeles, I guess for well, beginners. You didn't see my place. Yeah, yeah. See, they were. <laughs> no, that's true. You're exactly right. It, it's a, it's kind of a disaster. Yeah, uh, it's a sin. Yeah, because you have and all these like Stella Adler little theaters where people are putting up plays so that people can come see them and hopefully you know get signed or whatever. Or you're doing like twenty four hour plays or. Yeah, yeah. You're doing all those things. You're busting ass, but. You're not, I don't feel like your chances of being discovered are better here. I think New York, it's taken more seriously, uh, definitely. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a scam element to a certain amount of L.A. theater, which is a lot of people are paying to be in it, you know, yeah. which is not necessarily yeah. in, in and of itself bad, because I think everybody should be paid for their work. Um, and if you help a play get up, then sure, I don't necessarily object to that, but a lot of it is just full-on scam of, like, give me some money, we'll give you a black box. Right, right. Put on a sweater or whatever you want to wear, we don't care. And we'll invite all these agents, and maybe they do or maybe they don't, but if you see really bad theater, I mean, it it just is an assault. On yeah. The, I think it, the reason people go to sleep in the theater more than they go to sleep in the movies, because I think you're trying to make it better. Like there's a part of you that's like emitting something that's just like, come on, I'm here. I don't want it to suck. You don't want to suck. Right. Why is this so awful? Oh my God, I better go to sleep. And then you just kind of collapse. But in movies, a bad movie, you can 
go out and have drinks and talk about it and trash later. But usually when I see a bad play with people, everybody just wants to go home and go to bed. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. It's exhausting somehow. Yeah. There's an exchange and it's not a good one in, in a lot of theater. Yeah. And but that was to wrap back around to what I was saying before. So when I did the starting out kind of thing, I always would raise a lot of money to do plays and make them really good and and have a bit of a spectacle to them um, where it was terrific sets and, you know, lights yeah. and all of these things that were a full experience in the theater. And that is what fortunately led me to be to answer your question of how did I go from a production assistant to a director on Becker? Yeah. It was, I put on a play that um, I asked everybody I worked for, uh, for money, <laughs> including <laughs> Ted Danson, who was the star of Becker. Nice. And he gave me money and I thought, well, he's now nice he's going to come see it. And I'm sure he thought I don't have to come see it because I give money. But he did come see it, and it was that sort of, I'm sure he was expecting, like, turtlenecks and, you know, <laughs> whatever, but it was uh, a full, it was from 1636, it was, like, in a cave, I had, um, through a long series of negotiations, I got um, the, some elements of a set from some Star Trek movie that they were shooting at Paramount that I kept walking by when I was PA, <laughs> and they had these stalactites and stalagmites, and I was like, what are you going to do with those? Yeah. <laughs> Like, we're, we're gonna, gonna throw them out yeah <laughs> i was like well why don't i come and my crew will take them down and they were like you have no idea what you're talking about you can't do that there are unions you literally can't step foot on the stage and i was like well what if uh, we loaded into our truck instead and they it was i just accosted them for like three months and finally they said we'll bring the truck on the way to the dump to your theater and nice. you can pull it out whatever you want for one half hour and then we're on our way. And I was like, great. So I had our people there and we pulled it out and the set was already amazing because I didn't think that, I wasn't sure we were gonna get these elements. So it just put it over the top. Mm. So when Ted and other people came to see it, it, it really was like a fantastic play and it was really well done and the actors were incredible. And and Ted said to the creator of Becker, you should let this guy take a whack at a, an episode. Ted's and, really nice. I mean, obviously you oh had the God, talent there, he, but Ted is he, really nice. Uh, yeah, I would yeah. like to think I'd find some way to claw my way into the director's chair, but he was the one that made it happen, for sure. Oh. I, I I do think it's amazing that he came. <laughs> I think that just shows what, like... I know. That's... He must have been like, I paid my way out of this. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't I have to go? Yeah, exactly. But... but he loved it. He was... And his wife, Mary Steenberger, was really wonderful about it too they were champions of me so did you did so that's the, I'm and I know that that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and collaborating all of that especially if you're you're basically producing and directing that play so then do you stay do you're like oh maybe I should stay with plays or I'm given this chance I gotta jump out right now like no I mean that was a conscious decision when I went to theater school I thought focus on how to direct actors and then figure out cameras and how to get in there. That's why I became a PA at Paramount, because right. I thought, for one thing, I didn't really know about cameras. I knew some things that I'd learned myself, but uh, I knew I wanted to work in camera. And after directing theater in school, I, although I would still love to direct theater, I decided that I wasn't going to do that. I, For some reason, I remember <laughs> the phrase that I thought to myself was, if I 
even have a successful career directing around regional, you know, in the great theaters around, uh, excluding like Broadway, like a full on Mike Nichols career. Right. Um, I thought like getting to go around and do Chekhov and all these great plays and O'Neill and, uh, would be wonderful. But the phrase I remember popping into my head was that I would be lonely to the point of panic. <laughs> because I don't really know why, but I thought this is not going to be good for you mentally and emotionally. I don't know what it was that, but I was convinced that this wouldn't be good. And that I, and I always wanted to direct, you know, movies really because as a kid, I didn't like many people realize there are TV directors. So right. I would just, you know, I want to do movies and, so that was a pretty conscious choice. And I stepped away from the theater actively to make sure I was around for until I got a strong enough foothold. But I still, so now when I do plays, I when it's when I find I have a tiny bit of time off and I can do something in my backyard or at a local bar or something. Mm-hmm. I haven't done an actual play in a long time in a proper theater. When, uh, when everyone goes to see the play and everything that they put money into and they're they're like okay this guy's for real then where does that leave you like it's not like the next day they're like okay so episode eight you're gonna direct or was it like because it can happen well with ted it was i mean ted made that happen he pushed me over the edge of he asked for it and and he's such a wonderful guy who asks very little of anyone the creator was kind of like i remember meeting him and he said I mean, I was bringing him his lunch every day, you know, right, right. and then I had to have this meeting and I remember him leaning back in his chair and said, so why should I let you direct my show? And I remember thinking, well, there's a damn good question, you know, and it was mostly like, well, Ted saw this play yeah. and he thinks that I'm good and uh, let's be honest, this is the only way this is going to work. It's not, you didn't see the play and if you did, I don't know that you'd be prepared to do it, you know, this is a man who had slogged his way through a lot of writing and a lot of shows and had made his own show and is protective of it. Right. So I gave him my best shot, but I mean, we both knew that it was, it wouldn't have happened without a nudge from Ted. I was actually in a weird program at Paramount that was supposed to create new uh, sitcom directors and it just all had fallen apart shortly before that and nothing had happened. So. But then you did it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I was like, well, it's going to happen somehow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, nobody's doing this? I'm on it. Like, I'll I'll get it done. I mean, it was like, I know nobody's trying to find ways to let me direct. So I better figure it out. A lot of people told me I should stop directing theater. And they had a valid point of you'll be seen as a theater director. You'll never get camera work. Right. And then I thought, well, then I'm I'm just a PA. And also my skills are going to atrophy because right. if you don't stretch them out and work them out, the kind of director that I like to be and that I admire the most are the ones who can do almost any genre and all those kinds of things. And I feel like you have to stretch new muscles and build new muscles in order to do it. And if you take a year off to just deliver lunch, yeah. I felt like I would lose yeah. my momentum just artistically. Yeah. I didn't have any career momentum, but I was just like, no, there's something about the fact that all of these plays are hard to do. And the fact that I can do them means that I must really still believe that this is the way I got to go. Do you think that it being a multi-camera made it easier or harder? It made it easier for them to hire me because 
you're going to get it on camera. You know, there's four right. cameras pointed at the action all the time. Right. Maybe you don't have the best shots or whatever, but the story will be rendered cinematically, <laughs> you know, it'll right. be captured. <laughs> right. And so there's not, and then there is a history of like a big Broadway director will often, especially Frazier was very good at the time about getting a Broadway person like come over and direct. And they would sometimes say, I don't know what I'm doing. And they're like, it's fine. We've got you covered. You know, right. single camera, you really can not have the story on film. You know, if you don't right. know what you're doing, it's possible that you don't have it at all. And it will never make sense because you didn't shoot the right shots to tell the story. So it made it easier for them to hire me. And yeah, I think it almost undoubtedly did make it easier for me. Um, there were still a lot of things I didn't really understand of like the TV, especially the sitcom thing of like, let's have a private conversation. And you're like here. And I would move them way over here and like, well, I think we need more set over here. And I could just sort of feel everyone like, well, why? Like yeah. we've gone from this frame to a smaller frame. There's nobody else in the frame. It's private. And I was like, oh, right. You know, that's you're really telling it with your angle. Yeah. And that was a real revelation to me because uh, but there's almost there's there's far more. There's less than I expected in terms of relevance of theater to camera other than how to help craft a performance with an artist, you know, in collaboration with the actor. Right. Um, that kind of thing. And, and the basic idea of how to tell a story. But there's really not a whole lot of similarity. I find when you trend, when you bring in the camera, it's just a whole new ball game. Right. So there, it, there, it's not like a technique that threads from a director. I mean, obviously, it's still the interaction, and you you have this relationship with the actor that you're trying to convey the story. But is as far as the whole. Yeah. Other than that, I don't find a whole lot. Yeah. And then, of course, dealing with you know designers like yourself and. Uh, there's there's some overlap there, yeah. which again is different because what reads on stage is different than camera and things like that. But I find that there's a core grindstone to the theater that to me remains the main grindstone of storytelling and acting and design, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it extrapolates very far. By the time it manifests cinematically, it's just a whole different situation. Yeah, and, and from the mediums, like you're saying, from single camera to multi-camera, and even in like a limited series versus like a, a series that's going to go on and on, these characters, I always feel bad actually for directors who come in for like one episode and we've all been here for like three years and you're like, hey man, <laughs> just come on. Leslie Nope's just going to stand over here. Like it's, I just, feel, I yeah. feel bad. But I have also been super lucky on the like the comedies that I've done and worked with these really great directors who do bring something different in. And it's like, wow, that's I can see the difference. It's a it's like the it's just a different mode on the set, even from the actors or yeah. from everyone. You can feel I it. often feel like I actually enjoy being in that position. It's really strange, especially it's strange throughout, but especially in the beginning because I tend to be quiet and absorb the information because everyone knows so much more than you do. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, we're talking about, uh, it's her apartment. Yeah. I haven't seen it, you know, cause especially I do a lot of first year shows. So these people have been working on these sets for a long time. I haven't even seen the set, you know, yeah. and it's not on the air and I tend to be quiet and I can feel myself like <laughs> just sort of 
like a buzzkill, you know, like when you're in the van driving around and people are joking about things and I'm reading my script and people are, I feel like there's a little bit of like, Oh, here comes Mr. Aloof, you know, or something. I, that always feels like the weirdest point to me is in the beginning. Yeah. And then at a certain point I start talking and I, and I don't stop because it's like, I have my bearings. I understand things more and I can actually contribute to what's going on. Um, and there's, often a feeling where you're kind of um, waking up some crew members, you know, some, even some really essential like key department heads and things like that, yeah. that have been a little coasting along. And, and you know, that so these things are a bit like a train that's already on the track and they're kind of like, yeah, well, this is going to be that. And you can stop and say, well, does it have to be that? And yeah, we have to go to this park because you guys scouted it. Right. I thought it would be this kind of thing. And then they sort of stop and there's a little bit of a, like a film that kind of comes off of their eyes that is a little more like, oh, right. There was, we got a little just caught in the machinations and how the hell are we going to pull this off at all? And then coming in to say, well, we're going to pull it off and, you know, maybe this way might be more interesting. And that's always really satisfying to me that you can feel the reinvigoration of people that. Oh, definitely. Might be honestly, just beaten down. And, uh, <laughs> Do, uh, so, I, are you talking about me right now? <laughs> uh, no, you're always vibrant and alive. <laughs> but, you know, people can get a little on autopilot. Yeah. Enough people saying things about budget or whatever. And it's nice to feel like you're waking them up. It, and it it is that fresh pair of eyes in a lot of sense of like, there is a light bulb that goes off sometimes of like, oh, yeah. We could shoot it in this side room instead of the main, you know, living room that we always do. Or if they pull them over to side to have a co- private conversation, let's just pull them into this. We've never seen this laundry room or whatever. Like, Yeah, or there's a, like an assumption that an, an actor's not going to like that. She'll never go in that room or something. Yeah, like. yeah. And I'm a little like, well, I'll take a whack at it. She might, yeah. <laughs> you know. And, and then it's often the same kind of thing with an actor who can... I mean, actors are the ones who are at the most risk of any of us of looking like a schmuck, you know, like they're the ones yeah, who are going to get the meme yeah. on the internet <laughs> forever that just like, look how terrible this actor was in this moment. And so, and some of that is because people don't care like directors or they don't have enough time or whatever to understand what's going on. And so when you start to really have an active collaboration with them, then they wake up as well. Not that, yeah. I mean, actors can really never go to sleep. Sometimes they... Some can, I suppose. <laughs> but if you can really wake them up, then all these assumptions about them fall away. I find that a lot of people make a lot of assumptions about, oh, this this one is whatever. It's, yeah, they're not going to do it. Like, well, that's because they often don't feel like they're being helped and cared for. And so they're going into an autopilot of, I'm not going to look like an idiot. You know, like right. what you're saying is... I'm the one who's hanging out there. Nobody's going to talk about who directed this episode of TV right. or frankly, like the set sometimes, you know, oh, yeah. it's like, it's like, I'm going to be the one that people text to each other. Like, look yeah. at this moment. It's them. It is them. And I, I always think like, it doesn't matter if the sets, if it's hard for us to get the set ready, if they don't have actor availability, the actors, you know, that's it. They're the ones on screen. They're the ones yeah. that, that that's the number one. And it should be because I'm a viewer too. And that's, you know, a lot of the reason I'm yeah. watching this is because of either the actor or the story or the director or the sets. 
but mostly it's the actors because you could watch a lot of things and be like, I hate that actor. I'm not watching it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I you know. miss it's good a shit. mysterious thing. And exactly. Yeah. I mean, people that I've disliked see them on screen and it's like, well, this is, there's yeah. a black magic here. And yeah. It's not like any other element. I just watched uh, Halston. And I'm not really an Ewan McGregor fan, but my God, I was like, whoa. I mean, I liked him in, I liked him in Fargo, but I was like, eh, even playing two parts. But I don't know. I've never really been into him. And then I just watched Halston. I was like, he's really good in this. And it's so it's like, wonderful. it's, it's such a, it's such a fantastic script to me. They're the there must be a thousand fuck yous in, in that script that he walks into every room with a cigarette and he's like, fuck you, fuck you, and fuck you. Like, everything from him and his character is so balls out. I just love, I loved, I love the design and everything, but I was like... He's an unafraid. Yeah. He's a bold actor. He's unafraid. He's true to his instincts. He's a great fun to work with. And uh, he's got a real depth of talent. It's just fun to be able to collaborate with. How was that with him doing two different characters? And do you like switch directing mode of like, I'm talking to the same guy, but I'm giving different direction. Like, <laughs> No, I mean, uh, there's always a little bit of that with everybody. So I suppose there probably was when we were with the different characters, but I don't recall a, a, like a different um, vocabulary between the characters mm. that I would use as a director. But you know, you would definitely think of different, uh, a lot of, I think what I, one of the things I really enjoy doing is picking up on what the actors are bringing to the certain things. So it was interesting to see what he brought to the two different characters. Like I remember there was a moment when in a diner right before, like when he has a, a whole, uh, with Michael Stuhlbarg, uh, he was going to come in and they have a confrontation when, when he's the longer haired, right? Is good, right, right. <laughs> um, the more sympathetic, but right. uh, less successful of the brothers. And I remember thinking, like afterwards, I was watching him, and he was—he does all these little affectations that I really enjoyed. And there was a moment when we went back and reshot a moment, and there's no time on that show like there is on. There's no time on any show, but especially on that one. Yeah. But I thought we definitely got to go back and do this because I wanted to have the waitress come and take his food away before he was done and have him that's like, sad <laughs> and uh which he loved and i and i remember this moment because i thought in a way i invented this but uh because he hadn't really thought of it but it was just because i was watching all the things that he does and i thought oh this is an endearing moment of the kind of guy who's like they take away his breakfast before he's finished <laughs> and he can't really even say anything to do it and to me i sort of thought it was like his idea and he was like that's great and i was like Oh, right. This is just sort of like me observing things that you're doing and kind of putting it together. And, you know, I don't know. I just felt like that was a, an interesting moment where I never would have thought about that for Emmett, the other character. Right. Um, and it was just observing what the actor's bringing in general. And that does show his brilliance as an actor to be able to switch those gears and so quickly. I mean, it's probably not quickly when you're shooting it, but to be able to keep track of everything. I would think that would be really hard as an actor to keep track of like my tick with this character, my tick with that, like, I don't know. I don't think it's easy. Yeah, I think it, it is. I, 
we had a couple of other moments that were um he did an insert he loves to do his own inserts if you're just doing it you know shooting oh. cans or whatever and when he finds the dog he goes into the safe deposit box and finds the ashes of the dog. dog yeah and he, like a close-up of that on a stage way later and so we had to show him what he was doing and he was like i did that and it was like i didn't notice it either but it's the weirdest way to pick up that bag. Like nobody would pick it up that way, including <laughs> you and Prager. Like when he was looking at it, he's like, how did I even do that? And it was him both times. Like we had a wider version of him doing it and he had to sort of reassess how it was going because he was just in that character, in which that is way. especially, you know, legible compared to the other character that you're working with perhaps earlier in the same day. Right. And, uh, you know, he, he surprises himself. So there is like a keeping track of, of some sort of inner motor, but it's uh, not as conscious or um, detailed as you might think in terms of, I'll do this, I'll do that. It oh, was yeah. sort of like, I, he got into a certain sort of zone. It was like he was driving a different car or something and knew how it behaved. I think, too, he, it's such an amazing supporting cast in, in all of the, oh, the Fargo yeah. series. It's just... As an actor, as, as in all of our departments, when you have good around you, you do good or it elevates you to bring it up. And and I just I don't understand how Fargo isn't like everyone doesn't talk about it all the time. And, and it's like especially one of those shows like when's it coming back? Like everyone to me is like secession. When is the session coming back? <laughs> like, I feel like yeah. I'm always like, yeah, this is in Fargo. Like, when is Fargo coming back? <laughs> I know. I I agree. We kind of <laughs> fell off of the zeitgeist, I guess. I don't I, really know how or know why. How. I guess it's because people like new things. But it's always so new every time it shows up. That I mean, I agree. I've been fortunate to work on some real zeitgeist and some of the most amazing TV around. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I guess it's... I don't get it. for the new thing or I don't get I think there's a certain audience for FX. I don't feel like everybody watches FX and it's weird to me. Like when I feel totally right. I hadn't thought of that. I don't feel like it's a go-to whereas I'm like oh my gosh, like a baskets is coming back like <laughs> Like snowfall, yeah. snowfall. Like yeah. FX when we when I got rid of my cable last year I was like I need Bravo fx and tlc i need those three channels right. and a maybe a and amc but other than that you know. World time safe. yeah 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 <laughs> well well because now you can watch mad men anytime you want and uh, i'm yeah i'm one of the few people in the world who never watched breaking bad i refuse to watch it <laughs> all right well that's a, that's we all make choices i know <laughs> i'm not doing it but I don't want to. I don't want to like gloss over the fact that you like did Becker and then like you went to Fargo because you have so many, so many, like specific episodes on such great shows that I don't know how you bounce back and like get picked up all these great shows. <laughs> like to me, that's what I was almost going to ask you like, are you in control of your IMDb? Or are you just putting this up there? <laughs> I mean, it's a fair question. I don't really, there's a lot of luck involved for sure. Um, well, it's talent. It's talent and timing. I don't think it's luck. I don't, especially not in this business. I always say Definitely it. I'm not saying yeah. exclusively, but yeah. you can't deny luck. Yeah, well, no. I'm Irish. I don't deny it. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to spit in the face of luck. Yeah. Okay. 
page is going to take a whole different turn if I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you have like weeds, uh, Glee, Walking Dead, House of Lies, Shameless, like 11 episodes of Mad Men, Turn, which is a really good show, but I don't think ever really got it's yeah, due either. I I and it's hard it's um Barry Josephson, right? Who yeah. Produced that. Yeah. Who who I knew from Bones. And sure. then and then you get you that you, you you dive into this Ryan Murphy world also, but then you're still doing like Manhattan and Daredevil and Fear the Walking Dead and then you bounce back to Noah with like Legion and did he do Castle Rock? No. No, he did not. No. But uh, Sam Shaw, who uh, made Manhattan, he made uh, Castle Rock. I love Castle Rock. When is that coming back? Do you know? Can you give me some insight here? It's not, actually. It's not? Maybe taking a hiatus. I don't know, because they've got a great idea for another season, and I don't know if it'll happen or not, but hopefully it will. I thought it was so good. I think I think I liked the first season better. I can't remember, but I watched it all at once, and I just really... yeah, I had a great time on that show. Sam is a great writer, and Dustin Thomason was also he was kind of a, I guess maybe a, a right hand man or something on Manhattan. Mm. And anyway, they they created that show together, and that was. A hell of a good time. Was I that mean, shot was, in? Is that shot on like the um in like Maine or I feel like it's shot in Maine. Where's it? It was shot in Massachusetts. Massachusetts, which is very Maine. Like I did a lot of driving around Maine, and and maybe it's just me being a Pacific Northwest person that uh, I felt like we could those similarities were fine. And and Maine for various reasons was going to be really difficult to pull off, just production wise. And so yeah, I thought Massachusetts. We were in western massachusetts Ooh. mostly in a town called orange and uh it was very viable as maine oh definitely i i i i'm not i mean i love stephen king but i felt like it was such a good take on it of this like character that everybody knows yeah. and and then how like they've done it with ratchet of like a character that you know hopefully people have seen that that performance and know that like character that now they're going back to, to, you know, the origin story of it. Such a good premise for people who are, like, dying to know more about these characters. I know. It's amazing that Nurse Ratched is still, like, there's very few people. Even before the show, Ratched kind of, you know, re-energizes her in, in our international discussions. Or Even before, you know, like, everybody knew Nurse Ratched. And, I mean, what an amazing performance originally from Lou yeah. Fletcher and then... Sarah, of course, is a fantastic actor. Uh, I um I only watched I think three or four episodes of it because I couldn't take the gore of it. I thought it was beautiful. Yeah. I thought it was beautifully shot. I think the story is is great, but I'm just at a point where I can't. Maybe I'll get back to it. I would love to at a certain point, but I was just like, she put that woman in that bathtub and like turned up the heat or something. there was something about, and then the, with the, the chopping of the legs off, I can't. I was like, I can't, can't. I want more ratchet story, and I can't get these images out of my head once I stop watching this. Yeah. 
So it's I an- posted a lot. I have a lot of friends who won't watch my episodes of American Horror Story um, mm. for the same reason, you know, yeah. or even Ratchet, and there's a fair bit of gore in a lot of things that I... <laughs> I think five years ago, before kids, I could have watched anything, and I'm really affected by things now. Like, what was I that? I hear that a lot, yeah. I, I start, even like that first episode of Meredith Easttown... I'm not giving anything away. Someone dies. And I was like, uh, it's a, I, I can't, I don't know. Is this going to be bad? I can't do it. I really liked yeah. Hunters. I liked Hunters. I like the sets. I really love that set where it's like their lair and like, I, some of it I was like, oh, it's hard to watch, but I got through it because, you know, when you watch something and there's, there's, you know, there's you know five different stories going on. But that that story of Dottie and Murray, is it Dottie and Murray? No? Oh, yeah. The Carol Kane. The, the Carol Kane. Yeah. yeah. I was so enthralled with, like, that story and that being so sad. Me too. Uh, and you got to do the, like, heaven scene, which is so powerful. Yeah. And is it, what, is it purgatory or is it heaven? I don't remember, actually. But... It's- um, I guess I, I can't speak to the terminology of the Jewish faith, so I don't oh, really true. know. Oh, true. I it, don't know either, but yeah. It's a good place to be at the end, Yeah, I would say. And they're just such wonderful performers. And, I mean, Carol King had been, like, someone I'd wanted to work with forever. And He's... at the point, she's so wonderful and such an interesting person and just looks at the world differently than anyone I've seen and such a great actor and Saul really did a fantastic job. He's I mean, fantastic. I, I, I love him. I love him in everything, I feel like. Yeah. He's always great. So believable in everything, I feel. And, and I, yeah. it's one of those actors that must, if you like them, or like Carol, like if you like them and then get to direct them, it must be such a gift to be in part of their little universe for, you know, that oh, time. Incredible. It's incredible. And watching Saul, like we did that, there was a shot where we kind of went around the whole table and it was all basically a one that of course we did several takes of. And Saul was always so good about when she would say like, who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? And he's like, you'll call a handyman. You know, it was like, he really was able to, because one could look at the same scene and make it like, you'll do this, you know, you'll live through this, darling. And right. he was just like, oh, come on, brush it off. Right. And he was exactly right. And, uh, yeah, I, I learned a lot, as I do from almost every actor I get the privilege of working with. Which, uh, in it looks like in IMDb, in one year, you worked with Al Pacino, Sharon Stone, Judd Hirsch, Carol Kane, Tom Berenger, Jeff Daniels, Sarah Paulson, Leanna Olin. Like, you worked uh, in this, like, maybe year and a half, probably, or two years, with so many incredible actors. It's awesome. Yeah. I'm so jealous of you. <laughs> like... I I can't believe it. I mean, <laughs> and the amount of things that I learned from all of them, I can only just hope to ret- retain like enough of to bring to the other work because they were they're all just overwhelming in terms of essentially magnificence, but skill and what they've learned and what they were willing to share with me and whether they actually confided or whether they just displayed it through their performance. So. I mean, I feel lucky to get to be better, you know, yeah. if I don't, if I can't absorb and learn from those people, then 
I should get out of the business, you know. Being able to elevate and uh, and advance as an artist and with unbelievable teachers as collaborators. Yeah. Yeah. Could be more thankful or more. And great, great scripts. I mean. Oh yeah. Your episodes. I. I mean. I, I. The main thing I want to talk about is your Fargo episode this this past season, but. The scripts that you've gotten to do, which in Fargo, the season three one, where every character was like a different musical instrument. I mean, I I remember watching that the first time and being like, oh, okay. But then if you fast, this time I like, I fast forwarded because I was like, are they still doing it in like 40 minutes in? And it's really a whole thing. It's a good, it's a... enormously integrated with music that do you are you thinking about that the whole time or are you is that oh, like yeah. drummed into you when you're directing this of the sound i mean that unfortunately uh i mean noah is a very talented and deliberate writer and he told me that this was going to be a big part of it and i was actually working with the bowie version of that um, hmm. the recording of it eventually we got Billy Bob Thornton or he got Billy Bob Thornton to oh, wow. do it which was wonderful and a great delicious thing for yeah. all of you know those part of throwback but yeah. um so yeah I was working with that and I thought it was an interesting choice of the grandfather and like all of the different yeah it really it felt like a a core of all of the characters and I mean, the music is so wonderful, and I've always been just the title Peter and the Wolf of that piece, I always thought was yeah. from childhood. And it wasn't something that we listened to all the time or anything. It, I didn't have a lot of people had the uh, recollection of listening to it all through childhood, and I didn't. But I remember it being a title that just like rang out to me. And so it was kind of arguably better that I didn't have all these associations with it yeah. as particularly as many people did. But yeah, when you get a piece of music like that, it's like, how's this going to inform the visuals? You know, it's a nice, handy tool. I'd already worked with these actors and we knew their basic characters. Mm -hmm. So to try and find like, well, let's dig down to a sort of spinal element and say, how do these people interface with each other? Was It blossomed into a cinematic approach very easily. It was kind of... remember thinking well this should be more and it was in musical terms for sure i'm not really a musician myself um but i appreciate it and i don't play any instruments but i i can't stop going to ireland where they have lots of sing songs and so uh, (laughs) i have an element of that just vocally so i can appreciate the music not on the level of a real musician but i was able to think well, how is this going to work and give ideas to the various departments? And it really, it felt like a very, like you planted a garden and it was like the first day of spring and all of a sudden it's all popping up Yeah. because it was somewhat quick because as most of our schedules are, you don't have a lot of time to work on this stuff. But again, when everyone's invigorated and excited about it, you can all of a sudden everybody's wearing like superhero capes and flying around and doing things that are literally the impossible. Yeah. Or how could you do this in the amount of time? And there's no honest answer of how you could accomplish these kinds of things 
but you know that feeling of like when a production is really humming yeah you can actually achieve something that is literally impossible yeah like there's just not enough time or people to do it and there it is and i feel like it's sort of like god smiling down on us when we're able to really be fighting the good fight you oh, just yeah. get this hours and it's you know, where I try to live, you can't really live there, but you, in production, you can certainly get to a point where you're watching the impossible manifest daily. Yeah, I, I've definitely been a part of, of situations of like, this is, this is going to be rough. We're all in it. And it's, but it's magical. Like to, like everything from the costumes to the sets and the music and everything in that episode is so you know, it's a symphony that comes in to tell that story in that episode. It's really beautiful. It's really, it's almost like, it's almost like a college project that they throw you. Okay, now make this building out of this piece of music, <laughs> like something like that. Right. Like, yeah. And that's fun. And that's, you know, creative. It's not every day. And, it, and you got to appreciate when you get things like that, because all you know 11 episodes 10 episodes if you get one that's that creative or if you're in a 24 episode thing to you know when you get to do something out of the ordinary it does invigorate i feel and especially when everybody's on board <laughs> like it is really yeah I mean, you can feel like we can really do anything i mean if you've got a good group of artists like yeah. you can actually accomplish I keep going back to the idea that we do accomplish the impossible i mean it would be sort of mathematically you just can't do it. Yeah. And then here it is. And it's even better than you want it, which is where I try to live as a director. I feel like I can um, certainly contribute to and even perform a number of the jobs that I get to collaborate with. But if it's only as good as my idea, then we're probably in trouble. You know, like we, I, I'm <laughs> not like, I love to facilitate all this with all these people. <laughs> well, I mean, you want to have the specific experts who can, contribute to it and make manifest something that is uh beyond what you want or like oh i see what you're going for what about this and you're like yeah. wow that didn't occur to me at all but yeah. and then frequently that person will say well you said this and this and this and it was like sure but my math didn't work the way yours did you know <laughs> like yeah i wanted these elements and now you're telling me the end of the equation and it's amazing, but that is, it wasn't even what I asked for. It, it ticks all the boxes of what I asked for, but then so much that's more. Right. And that's where I feel like, I mean, for one thing, just excited as a person to be able to consume that visually or yeah. sonically goes, but also like, well, I'm doing well at my job. If that, if yeah. that, if you can kind of steer people along to something that is beyond what they thought and what you thought, then into the, the magical land beyond and yeah that's where hopefully i mean i i'm always amazed at what all of us can do and in the time and the money and the manpower and then to feel so good about it when you see it later there's nothing yeah there's nothing worse than seeing it later and thinking we did all of that <laughs> And all we saw was that corner. <laughs> yeah. That is a buzzkill. So I've learned you got to live in the moment. You got to take it all in when the DP gets there before they start to move everything. Because it's not, it's not probably, 
Like, I, I, I'm not even joking on Veep. Like, the scripts for the half hour were, like, 75 pages long. We shot a full hour show that they didn't even air half of it. And it was so deflating. <laughs> I would read the script being, I can't wait to watch this. Who's going to do this? Because I don't want to do all this. I wish they could have, like, an extended version with everything that we really shot. But... It is so exciting in the moments of like, oh, we're like right now. I mean, I love doing White House and things like that. Like, we're going to do the East Room or get to do the Red Room or like things like that. Like, I really love, love, love doing all that. So, but again, oh, they shot it this way. I understand why they shot it this way. I know what the dialogue is. That's a bummer. They didn't see that over there. (laughs) But Yeah, I know. It's... uh... And, That's always a tricky exchange. Yeah. And, but it's, it has to move the story along. I understand, you know, the, the lollipop heads of it. <laughs> like, especially in half hour comedy, they, it's like wide, like, it's like two second wide. No, that's true. Yeah. Heads. This, but it's so, it's the, interesting to inform. I mean, great elements can always inform, at least the way I shoot things. I remember shooting something on Mad Men where there was this character walking out of, a conference room and he was this idiot his name is ho-ho the character mm-hmm. and uh he and janie bryan our costume designer gave him these wonderful white shoes that i thought <laughs> made him just look like a real schmuck especially there and i remember framing it wider to get the shoes and everyone sort of like what well not everyone but the dp sort of saying well we normally frame them a little bit above and i was like but look at these shoes and <laughs> we did actually final cut because I thought I agree in a way the shot would have been more compositionally strong had we cut it off where we normally would but the story is here's this guy walking in with his white shoes with a little like gold thing and and I remember thinking well that's how I fall down in this equation you know like I would maybe the rules of composition are being violated and and this is weaker but my rules are story and yeah the rules of story always trump i feel they have to they always they have to your 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 whole objective is to move the story forward or be informative in every shot i mean that's that's the job especially for editing i mean that's that's the job so sacrifice of creative is never as Usually, yeah, a blink. A... To what before, you know, theater and a performance ruling of story always ruling. Yeah. I would rather. Also, some of the best shots that you ever come up with are because of story, where it's like, could we do this? And then you come up with something that feels actually new, which is pretty rare. And there's not someone who's like, oh, this is like that shot from Train Spotting. Yeah. Or whatever. <laughs> well, like, that's, oh, that's the thing, a... too, about, uh, I mean, I, this is my first endeavor into a Ryan Murphy that there's, it's great in a sense of like, there's reference to all of these films and all of these, you know, uh, scenes and, and shots. And I love it. And it, it was like a game to me in the beginning of like, I've seen all that. Oh, I didn't see this one. I got to go home and watch that. Like, I got to zero in on what the relationship is to what we're shooting. But in a certain sense, I can only, it's like me not listening to any other podcasts. I can't, I don't want to be influenced that much. Right. But I watch a lot of TV, 
but I don't want to be influenced that much. So you, I feel like referencing, like, of course, like the Reservoir Dog Shard or whatever everybody's trying to do, it's, it's, it, it puts you into a tunnel. Almost. Yeah, and a reference, it's one thing if it's a funny thing, especially in comedy, if it's like the Reservoir Dog Shot, if you get a bunch of people walking down with <laughs> black and white shirts, and that can be funny if it's like a bunch of people going to a wedding or a funeral or something, especially in a comedy. If yeah. you're trying to insert that into your more dramatically sensed piece, then you really are derailing it and you're going into a reference of something that might very possibly be superior to right. what you're doing. Right, and it's going to take the person out of it if they're aware of it. Yeah, I tend to find, yeah, I have a, a very, <laughs> my friend Craig Robleski, a great DP that I worked with on Fargo and Legion, and uh, we have an ongoing discussion of shot versus image, which is really boring to anyone else, but we'll kind of go back and forth on this a lot of the time, and it is... I tend to find when there's a shot device and I can feel a shot that's like, whoa, look at this shot. It's almost always got a little bit of ring of hollow to it. Mm. And that it, you're better off thinking of it in terms of image, which is much more relatable to story. And I know this is all semantics and it's super boring, but Craig and I like It's not super boring. It. <laughs> it's not. It's a huge <laughs> difference of how you're thinking of how you're framing your shot and start probably starting off a scene. That's probably yeah, your first. you have like an image is a building block to a story and a shot is very often a self-enclosed entity. Mm. And when you make a shot, it's very much like, and then it goes over here and then it ends like this, whatever. And um, it's like, well, that would be fine in a museum, you know, much like there's no museum for this, but if it is a piece of art that is like, we're really going to focus on let's look at this one particular image. And in this case, if it's a shot of like, it starts here, it mm -hmm. ends here. I feel like a collection of images is the building blocks for a rendering of a story that can then like take purchase in someone's mind and blossom into their own flower to continue this <laughs> metaphor, I guess, um, that might be different than everyone else's. If you're giving them the really rich images then that's how they can arrive at a story that becomes personal in their mind and is different than what anyone else says so that if someone assails that and is like i didn't really like that you can feel sort of hurt and like right well, right and that's because they didn't they didn't see what you saw they didn't feel what you saw right. you know like they didn't feel what you felt while you were consuming this piece of cinema and it can be really upsetting and hopefully make you defensive and question that person's taste. Yeah. You know, if you were like, well, this is one of the greatest things I had. Right. Which does go back to <laughs> theater is always, even if you saw it on a different night, if I recommend to you a play and you saw it on a different night and you hated it, there's a part of me that is like, I can write a little bit of that off to, well, the night that I was there, the way that they performed it, the way the audience was, right. was magical. And why someone who was at opening night of Streetcar Named Desire, which I'm sure is about 3,000% of the people who were actually there, right. can cherish that forever and say, like, well, this was, you know, I saw this. And, and some of those people might not even think that way, really, when they were there that night. Right. And then have learned it afterwards and tried to do it, like, 
you were there and like, well, yeah, I was there and it was great, you know, <laughs> right. but I feel like if you can make something, that's how you kind of, it's all about making a personal experience for the audience, which you can't, you can't prescribe for everyone, but you can make the elements that you feel are the best rendering of the story that can hopefully create in them something that is personal that no one can take away. So that if everyone's trashing a movie, you might just quietly not say anything or whatever, but like hold into your heart, like, well, this was an important movie for me and had extreme resonance. And yeah, it was an experience. Someone starts to attack that. It's really upsetting. Yeah. Oh, definitely. It's definitely upsetting when you, when you find something that you really like and, and, and connect to, and then someone's like, eh, I think um, that acting or that scene, like this and this, and you're like, yeah. Well, I don't even think I can be friends with you anymore. (laughs) I don't think I can touch you. Something like that to someone who really does not like it or just like you liked that. Yeah. Almost everyone has a little element of, well, you know, yeah, maybe it was the night that I was on, or maybe I had a drink or something. You know, like there's you kind of get defensive about it and start to (laughs) quietly assail it yourself. It's pretty hard to say, you're goddamn right, I love that. And you can say whatever you want, but I think it's a masterpiece. Uh, Yeah. And that's really a hard thing to say, I think. You know, I've done it on occasion, and (laughs) it's it's really, it really is a (laughs) buzzkill. Like, it can change the tenor of a conversation for sure, and even a relationship. But these things are, those things that you cherish because of your experiences of, receiving it is uh it's just special and hopefully that's something that you know when we're really humming along as a production team i feel like that's what our job is and and the gift that we can hopefully give people and ourselves yeah that's it you even i've said it many times when you win an emmy or when you do you don't it's it's got to be your own achievement and your own award to yourself because it's not like it mean it is for like say me or you don't get a pay raise. <laughs> you don't get better choices at product at, at, at project you know projects. It's different for actors and directors. But so on each element, there's got to be something for an actor or director that, oh, it means so much, but not really. It actually once you got there, you were like, oh, yeah, it's great, but, it's also, I still got to get up at five tomorrow. <laughs> I still got to drive 60 miles to set and, you know, get dirty. And even, yeah, and it's hard to let go of. But I love it. If it didn't <laughs> you wanted it. You know, like by the end, if you did, like some of the productions you're talking about where you, they shot, you know, twice as much as they needed. And someone else is like, oh my God, I love that. It's hard to not have a tinge of, you know, despair yourself. Yeah. Of like, yeah. well, if it would have been, yeah. Just like this, holy shit, would you have loved that? Yeah. You know, and it's hard to let go of that kind of thing, and to not squash that for someone else and say, you know. Yeah. Oh, it's so it's I very. It's very hard when uh, it, it's it gets harder the, the older I get of people who want to get into this business. To not be just a little bit like, hey, listen, it's not great, like, a lot of the time. <laughs> but when it's great, it's awesome. And it's fulfilling, and it's a dream come true. 
but it's not great all the time. <laughs> like you gotta. Well, I, I agree with and enjoy what you said about it's sort of on the day, you know, like yeah. with your case of like when the set looks just like you want it to look before people go and move it around because of shots and things like that. Like if you can really enjoy the actual creation of it, that's yeah. something no one can take away and no one can even experience because even if it does go exactly the way that I thought it, like shows that I've directed where it was from concept to shooting to airing really close to what I wanted it to be. Um, I can still cherish the ones that veered a little bit different where from concept to execution, it changed or from execution yeah. to airing it yeah. changed. I think if you can really actually enjoy those things and, and have something that resonates with you about the quality of it, then it's a very different experience. Yeah. Uh, I, I was thinking when you were talking about shot versus image that you've worked on so many graphically induced uh, series, like even Fargo is so picturesque or Legion or I mean, Mad Men in a sense. I mean, you have so many that are uh, ratchet. I mean, those huge sets and the lighting and it's so bold and everything. I mean, does that, that must put you in that world so much easier, I think. I mean, you're not, you're not seeing it with the lights on and everything beautiful all the time, but the graphics of it, especially Legion, I think, which I don't know what the hell, I love Legion, I don't know what, I don't know what happened. <laughs> I can't follow that story, but I thought it was really fun. And I love Aubrey Plaza because I knew her from Parks, but I mean... I was like, I don't know what's going on, but this set's cool, and these actors are great, and the chick coming out of the guy, and <laughs> Gene Smart <laughs> is the best, who you worked with twice, right? Did you, you had her in Legion and Fargo, right? Yeah. She's, hey, Jean, sorry, I missed what you were saying. Gene Smart, right? You had hey. her. Oh, my God. Oh. Legend. Yes. She's so good on Hacks. Are you watching oh, Hacks? She, I haven't seen Hacks yet. It's so but good. She's never not good. She was born to act. I mean, she is and such an interesting, lovely woman. But my God, she knows what she's doing. Yeah. And even if she's in Mayor of Easton, a completely different character, nailed the Philly accent. And then, you know, she's on Hacks as a superstar. Something to that show that is not there. You know, otherwise, it's just like she does to every show. She's She finds a color that is different than the whole other spectrum and it it melds together but it's like you know that color is there right <laughs> like, exactly he's, uh, i think she did she's a fascinating woman and she started in theater herself and oh, nice. we talked about that a little bit she went down to the oregon shakespeare festival and did <laughs> she did major i'm a little obsessed with eugene o'neill and she did a lot of o'neill early on as a young woman like way younger than you should Oh. you can do on stage if you're good enough like Jean Smart is I think and nobody knew who she was she was like just out of high school or something and she's doing like major in. like three decades older than she is in life or four uh, performances and no one would ever know I, I mean I didn't see them but it was you can get away with that kind of stuff in theater if it's if, if you're good, good. <laughs> if, and you're if she's good. not already Jean Smart, right, <laughs> you know, right. Then uh, 
I don't know. I think she's, as I always find in the theater, a lot of people, the actors eventually start to gravitate toward each other. Mm-hmm. Like in terms of performance, they start to become similar and sort of steal from each other sometimes. And this is very broadly speaking and not true of everybody. Um, but then there's someone like who I imagine Jean Smart to be at 19 years old or probably nine years old, um, who's able to say like, well, that's taking that. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing like, what's, why am I on this stage? Why am I different than everybody all the time? Right. And I find that that's again, sort of the grindstone of theater for me of performance that you, you can't have like, why are you both there? You know, right. Right. You can't be doing the same role. <laughs> but tempting to say like god that person is killing it when they do this whether it's comedy or emotion maybe i should do a little of that it's hard to say well that's taken yeah let what me, do i do what do i or do when someone else is taking how do you then mutate to something that is even beyond that and i find all that interesting and gene is always singular nobody's doing what she's doing i i find her too um even though you know it's her, you don't recognize her right away. I don't think she's, she had such a hiatus, and I know that she worked during these those years, but nothing I saw in the sense that, like, you forgot about her, and that she's back, and then she's in Fargo, and then she's popping up in, like, cool shit like Legion, and now she's got, like, her own show, and it's like, god damn, man, was it? I mean, Designing Women was on in, like, 88. Like, what? Yeah. And you were you were hitting it then. Like, it's crazy. And she was acknowledged for it then. Yeah, like, yeah. Women she won Emmys. The main, yeah. The main, like, sitcom time where it's like, oh, it's another funny lady on TV. People were still like, no, that's Jean Smart. Yeah. Like, that's... Yeah. She's a, a real worker, and yeah. she, she just knows how to just realize the particular sort of quickening within herself that only she has. Now, wait, commun- now, wait, wait. Did you know what was going on in Legion? I mean, you did eight episodes. I hope you did. But I, you, you lost it. At some point, you were like, okay, we're just, it's like lost here, right? Like, we don't know what's going on. I never lost it. <laughs> but I, I don't know that what I thought was going on is the same as what Noah thought was going on. Mm. The I writer be- Noah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh or the actors you know like we would be on a page of certainly in this scene because i mean you have to have that was a challenging certainly narratively (laughs) you know it's the most sort of uh malleable narrative i've probably been involved with yeah also open to interpretation and noah's a writer of great skill who can say i'm going to present these elements they are cohesive and they make sense they might make a different sense to you than they make sense to me. And they're, it was an experience delivery machine rather than a narrative delivery machine, as Noah would like to say, or I think he would say it, it's not a plot, plot delivery machine. It's an experience delivery machine. I, and so when I just think that has to be so that, hard. That has to be so hard as a director and an actor and a writer, because I see things now, like we're on something that actually happened and there's a lot of discussion between the writer and the director and the actor in the moment of like, how are we going to play this? What were they thinking? What, what are we doing with this? What's my motivation? Blah, 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 blah. But if the three of you are sitting there, like I wrote it like this, 
okay, well, I thought I was interpreting this, and then the actor comes in with something else. That There must have been a lot of, like, discussion before shooting about what the fuck is going on. <laughs> That's just how yeah. I took it. It was, it was like... Uh... I mean, they can't be fully at sea, you know, they have to be, they don't necessarily have to, it's not as keen as like, well, you want this from this guy. I, uh, I don't know. I just think it's, I loved it, but I just think it was really hard. I mean, cause I know the decorator of second season and I know how hard it was to achieve all of that look and everything. And and hearing like you know you get pages and you you get this and it's all you know beautifully done i mean those sets i think were fantastic absolutely and then you have all those these like dream elements that are put into it i just think it'd be so hard i've never i don't think i've been in, on a project like that and i feel like that's really hard <laughs> you have yeah i agree it's uh it was a challenge you know but it was an exciting challenge because it was nobody had made anything like it no it's a beautiful product and it should really be seen as an example of that type of you know that we're pulling this off in television number one which is remarkable yeah. remarkable and marvel. i mean marvel yeah. is not and that went on forever, and it's to Noah's credit that he fought forever to have control of that show. And Marvel, of course, was involved. It's a Marvel character and all of that, but they didn't have the control that they normally had. Oh, that's and nice. <laughs> it would have been, you know, it would have been very different had they. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure it, it's too many cooks. <laughs> too many cooks never make a good soup. <laughs> no. There's so many cooks. Um... I do. I have to talk because I'm. I'm. I know. I'm, I got. I got limited time here because I'm taking up your whole day. Um. I, I got to talk about Fargo though. Your episode because this season is set in Chicago in the 30s or 40s. I think 40s. Yep. And um, the most interesting episode that stuck out to me was this black and white one. And then I found out that you directed it, and I was like, oh shit. That's really good. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, I felt lucky. Speaking of luck, I'm, I'm happy I got that one. So that was planned before you came on to shoot that black and white? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was just to be black and white before. No one knew that this was going to happen, I can't say exactly when, but well before we shot it. Wow. And creatively and directing, does that open things up that it would be in black and white or does it like collapse your sort of oh it totally opens up for me i mean yeah i i never mind strictures or restrictions or whatever you want to call them um of palette or theme or anything i always find it helpful and great um so it completely opened it up for me i've shot some things in black and white but never a whole episode so knowing that we were committed to it and not looking back was great because a lot of times people are like, well, maybe we'll make this black and white for a little bit of this. And, and then you have to protect for color. And right. that's very different than just saying this is only black and white and the added, um, you know, challenge of 
dividing that set in half so that not only is it black and white, but that the Barton arms can feel like yeah. a way that the audience can understand. Of, I always found that a really fantastic dramatic device, but also kind of hard to achieve visually of like, will the audience really know that it's, you know, half ha- and half? Half and half, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think... I think it was done like subtly or subtly, subtly, uh, but yet graphically enough that it, it did represent it. So I don't feel like it was like over your head, which I, because it could have gone wrong. It could have. Yeah. And it could have been like little, we had talked about, should there be stanchions in the room or things like that to help elevate it? But it also felt like, well, this isn't going to be true to these women who hated each other for so long, you know, and lived together in this, like, who are we kidding? This is, this is something that would have happened a long time ago. Nobody's sprucing it up every day to make sure it's just like, there's this side, there's that side. These decisions were made a long time ago. Yeah. Always been fascinated about, there's, you know, often a tendency in uh, production design to say, well, if this is set in 1938, everyone bought their shit in 1938. Right, right. It doesn't work like that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And same with costumes, you know, like how many, I bought this shirt, I don't know how long ago, like a decade. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I always find that interesting of when you're trying to render a period, you really must incorporate the previous periods unless it's a strange I don't even know yeah. what you're trying to do if you're trying to say, I don't know anyone who bought all their furniture and their clothes and their appliances and their car today. Today, you know? right. They're, you're not in style today. We're all dated at this point because we yeah. didn't do it today. And, that, and even if you did buy something today, it's probably influenced by your taste, which might have been frozen a little bit earlier. You know, yeah. of like, I like these kinds of shirts or whatever. Yeah. You, all you have to do is not do tomorrow. <laughs> that's basically the rule that I feel like you just can't put an eighties chair in the middle of a fifties set. Like just that's your thing. Yeah. You could do forties and thirties and twenties, but it, you could have like something from the teens, you know, like that might've yeah. actually like just for some reason been around. I mean, yeah. I have things in my, I grew up in Oregon. I have things that a dresser that made it for some reason, people brought this goddamn dresser from uh, <laughs> all the way across the Oregon trail. And it's just in my house. Oh, my God. I don't necessarily know it by looking at it, but I can't bring myself to get rid of it, and nobody else can either, you know? Yeah, well, no. I love furniture. I hope you don't. <laughs> think that you could get a dresser? Like, and, of course, they didn't. They didn't know what they were going to, and it's really heavy. Must have been a pain in the ass to bring over the Rockies. On but their cart. Geez, you know? It's, uh, it's also... Uh, you, I should ask about locations and, and how much influence the director has on locations because that house especially is so... I don't know if you digitally took out pieces around it or if that really was a standalone. It was a standalone. Wow. It was, uh, it was a standalone. There was one... There is a kind of more... There's a more modern barn. I mean, not modern, but not appropriate to the time period. That's off to the side that we did get rid of digitally, but everything else, the whole landscape is true to what it is, including the opening in the episode of like a falling apart barn that you see like this book. Right. And that is a barn that fell down there. I don't know when it's just sitting there Mm -hmm. of all this like 
really dangerous stuff that I would have played on as a kid. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, like nails everywhere. And that was basically why Noah had the idea of having the book, which mm -hmm. played briefly in season two that a lot of people I don't think would remember. And it was, it was a book of like crimes of the Midwest. And, and I had the idea of moving, of having it be destroyed in this barn because I was just a little like, I don't know who's opening the book. You know, like there's just right, a little right. that's sort of like, who cares in a certain way? And, you know, Buster Scruggs had just come out not too long ago where they do that and the Coen brothers love that sort of thing. And I do too. But I, I don't know. It was different. Like Peter and the Wolf is almost like opening the book. Like when Peter and the Wolf starts in season three, right. it is very much like here's a narrative voice that's saying, you know, we're going to tell the story this way. Right. This one I felt was more like, I don't know, but it was because the barn had fallen down there already. And I thought, well, maybe the book was in the barn and, you know, it got destroyed too. And anyway, that was already there. There was a standalone house that this couple had bought sight unseen from, I don't remember where they were. They were not even in the state. And they found this thing online and they bought it. And That's crazy. <laughs> as with many places that I've shot in there, we're pretty lucky that we were there because <laughs> right. we know, you know like we did a lot of repairs on it and a yeah. lot of things that were like i don't know i mean they are in the middle of fucking nowhere and uh well that's what made me think it was digitally taken away or something because it's it so and it's a massive place it's got to be three four floors yeah. i mean it's huge yeah i mean the third floor was unsafe and we built that on stage but it was of course based on the footprint that's logical for there and we brought they have this amazing banister that is an incredible piece of woodwork mm -hmm. that we had to take out of there and bring to our set because it was just going to be easier to and then wow. they built some of it and it was all yeah it was a real feat of production of warren young our great production designer and martha sparrow or art directors they really they were all over it. I mean, that had been scouted before, and they were like, we're thinking this, you know, because I've worked on the show before and with them. And uh, <laughs> it was, uh, of course, the obvious place to pick. Right, I, <laughs> right. It's... They had already been working on it. The garage was the real problem. The, I mean, the, the gas station. The gas station. Had a real problem finding that gas station. Because, but... because then digitally it had to go away. I mean, it gets all like torn yeah. up by a tornado. So, I and thought that I thought it was a complete build. No, there was a base. There were the bones of the place. I mean, Fargo. A deep dark secret about Fargo is that it's very, very cheap. Much like Mad Men, mm -hmm. there's not a whole lot of money to. We could have built that, um, but it would have had to have been done before I got there and. I don't actually know the story of why it wasn't built because the problems that I always find with period gas stations is of course the pumps are never yeah. accurate yeah. and if existing pump, you can't really get rid of them. If there's like live gas lines and everything you can, but can't I've never been in a product that could yeah. and it's always too close. So you usually go to the garages, like a mechanics garage of some kind and they're never, their relation to the street is always wrong. So anyway, we, we got lucky and found that place, but I mean, 
it was so far away from everything. We were based in <laughs> Chicago. Everything was so far from everything. It was, you know, a disaster on that level. It was one of those things I was talking about. Of We were all so eager to make it happen. We were so excited about it. I had just come in only for that episode. And most years I had done a couple of episodes or yeah. more. And uh, it was really nice to be able to come in and just focus on the one, especially since it happened to be such a particular one-off that not only the black and white, but there were really only, you know, three characters, characters yeah. four characters from the existing, everyone else was new characters, you know, so it was really fun for. That little boy is so good. That little boy is so uh, good in there. Isn't he funny? Yeah. Fantastic. You just want to like give him a hug the whole, like every episode I'm like, I just give this kid a hug. So that whole story yeah. is so awful. <laughs> and then wish up. What an actor. I just love that guy. Yes. Uh, I remember I was at a little thing. Uh, Jesse Buckley, who's an actor, is not even on. She's not even, she's not even in this episode. And she was having a little party and invited me to like a dinner party. And she asked, what were there any shots that you thought were especially of the silent kind of period or of that sort of period, not necessarily silent? And I always just think of this one shot of Ben's face, like when he's looking at the sign, it's right before the Terminator scene, and he's mm -hmm. like, what the hell does that even mean? And there's just like a close-up on like a 40 millimeter lens that I just felt like, God, this really feels like one of those old movies, even more so than some of the other ones that we tried really hard to make feel like an old movie. It was like, again, the actor is like the perfect cast for it, and he's such a great performer. And I just thought, yeah, this feels like... No, but yeah, definitely. I think too, when you're watching some, when you're a viewer watching something that's period, you you know you're into it. But for this episode, because it was black and white, it was like you're watching it in the '30s or something. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, I'm watching it as it would have appeared in this time, which I thought was really genius. Right. Of like, they're really in in incorporating the viewer into this time and it didn't take me away from it that the main characters weren't there or that this story started to you know go a different way in a sense I was just enjoying so much like the difference of of what was going on and, and being so enthralled in in the episode it was really good it's really good yeah well I mean no one knows what he's doing it all of course comes from the script and uh the basic ideas behind it but it was i mean that you could that was a great example of that kind of invigoration that i was talking about of everybody feeling like i mean that that company was certainly not asleep when i got there like <laughs> by any means they were working around the clock and hard but it was like oh we've been waiting for this one you know and and the tornado i mean you got to do it you got to direct a tornado <laughs> i know i had didn't realize that that was on my list of things to direct and it was i've had there are two like that in daredevil i got to direct ninjas which i thought was <laughs> doing it like oh my god my younger self like growing up on the probably thought about directing ninjas all the time <laughs> and, uh, but this was another one of a tornado that was and it's fun to obviously the tornado is cgi but I always find the really interesting thing is how many elements you can bring of it on the set, of, mm. you know, because it just never works if it's pure CGI. 
And of course, we didn't have a real tornado that happened to hit at the right time. We made that happen, and and our wonderful VizFX Lou is a terrific VizFX captain and his whole team, and um, we were able to do so many. We were just surrounded by Ritter fans, those big old annoying things that you can't hear anyone. You can't hear anything. (laughs) Gas operated. It's just like. And it's, they never, you turn them down and they can't get up in time for the other stuff. So everyone's just screaming at each other and you still can't hear. It was, and we got all the corn husks we could find. And I remember Martha said, I, I hope nobody wants to make a tamale in Chicago. <laughs> we got all of the corn husks that we could find because we tested them and thought like, well, what shows up on screen? Like, should we half them or like? all these different elements of things that you put in. That the conversation, think- the weird conversations you have to have. Like, yeah. What really shows up in a tornado? Like, <laughs> yeah, and what shows up on screen, especially in black and white, <laughs> that you can actually perceive that can work because you're going to augment it eventually. But I always feel the more you can do in camera, yeah. the more your mind forgive the mistakes or, or bridge the gap for you. So you're not trapped in the uncanny valley where you're, you know, you actually, you're willing to suspend your disbelief and say, this is, this, this is happening. Yeah. And I feel like it's about all of the little elements and, and things in the production design of those flags, all of the, I mean, so much of it was just like, well, what's going to move when the wind comes? Yeah. You know? And you have to have like options how- for that. Like there's definitely, definitely, I was on bones for six years. We exploded everything with Noah. We exploded everything. There was a dead body in every episode. Like... <laughs> It was the best, yeah, it was the best, like, sort of decorating school. I feel like my, it was the perfect job to have in the beginning because it was like, okay, we're gonna, this hotel exploded. Would the piano really survive? Like, <laughs> like, oh, let's burn a piano and see what happens. <laughs> or, you know, the plane crashes we did yeah. or things like that. Like, and it is collaborative with the director and, and visuals of like, well, what do we have that we can use? It's always, what can we use? What can we use for that? What's, what's going to flutter in the wind? What's going to be too heavy? That's be too heavy. We shouldn't have that. Or yeah. I love that collaboration. Our, I just thought of in uh, Castle Rock, there was an episode where (laughs) I called him the deep woods barber. (laughs) This guy, when they go out, (laughs) And find this barber out in the middle of the woods and um in his house uh there's a or in that episode anyway there's he goes into the main character goes into a house and there's a piano that had fallen through from the ceiling right 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 <laughs> right and i remember thinking like how this is a great idea but how would it work and i just remember being amazed when i walked in that it looked just like it and the whole story was told visually of it was like a late game idea that this should happen. And it's just like, you know, people in your department that make that happen. Yeah. But on the, that was all. The, I also appreciate that we had the idea of the painting of the, this was of course in the script that they're painting the station, which helps the, the gas station, right? which helped passage of time. Um, and uh, we had to have a wall we had to take the wall off and put it in the back because I was just like, there's no way we're going to be able to do this. We've got to shoot this as a montage. Of right. course, you can't just shoot people painting a wall. Right. It's 
forever. You're never going to show that, you know, and how does it work? And what's the difference of the characters? And of course the guy who doesn't want to do it is a bad painter. painter. You know, right, it's right, like, right. Very careful of that. He's like going Mr. Miyagi on it, and the other one's like, <laughs> and I thought, well, this is more again story and character. Like this is these characters are already in the script, and this is just another way to get it across. And it was like, well, can we just take that wall off and put it in the back? And while we're shooting the front, just shoot that one. wall painted, you know, so we can do these shots the way we want to. And and then it goes through the whole thing of production which again is always never enough money but if people are like yes that's a good idea like this can help us tell the story then you can get another camera that's back there doing that and all these things and it was it's one of those again where it's like we just could not do that but if we didn't do it 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 would be a real problem right right you gotta get it done somehow you have to collaborate and brainstorm and you have to have good producers you have to have people who who are helping solve the problems? I mean, that's that's always helpful. I think I think your biggest revelation here was that Fargo doesn't have a lot of money because that looks like a million dollars on screen. So kudos to everyone on that. I don't mean to insult people, but I would. It feels like I guess I wouldn't call it a cheap show, but it it's an efficient show. I remember my one of my first episodes was. There was a one of the first things I shot was a shootout in a theater in season two, and and there was a whole big meeting about going like a half an hour over than <laughs> what we expected, way before we shot it. And I was like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> we're gonna go more than that on that day." And it was just like it sets the tone of this is a tight ship. Like yeah. There's every every dime. We'll spend the dimes, but we want to know where they're going and. And I do appreciate that, you know, I, it makes you more inventive and and more certain of what's going on, you know, in terms of what can we get away with? We can't, there's no cavalry coming in that's <laughs> going to bring a bunch of money with them. No. You know? But I do, I do want to ask, and I'll make it my last question, because then you have transitioned to producing and executive producing shows and you're, so then you're in these moments of like your creative versus your like... Oh, now I have to make help, you know, make it cheaper, but I want it to not be cheaper. <laughs> I mean, there's got to be devil angel on their shoulders at that point, because you know you want the shot. You know you want the third camera there. There's got to be discussions, too, of like, oh, shit, I got to think about this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, I find that sort of invigorating. Of It's sort of, to me, if I was a painter, which I'm not, but you know, you only have a few colors or something like that. It's you can make those choices, or you you decide like this is what it's going to be, and we got to figure it out. And it's interesting to me to now be more involved in the like. If you say you want a third camera, what does it mean? Do you want a third camera? Are you just protecting yourself of like right. it'd be great because most of the time you can't use a third camera to make really great shots, but you can use it to leapfrog ahead of say like we're going to have those people set up already. The track will be laid down. Right. The operator we worked out this shot based on a rehearsal that we stole at lunch or something. And then that for me is kind of the best use of a third camera or of course the tornado, because a lot of it was so far away and there's, you know, you can find out things like that, but it is like, is this cost effective or is this, or is this creative effective or is it just cost effective or is it just 
a waste of money. Yeah. Because our industry wastes a lot of money and uh, in a way I'm okay with that, but it is upsetting to think like, how much did we spend and how many people are starving in yeah. our country alone, you know? Yeah. And it's not like the people get the money in the form of food if we don't no. food it, you know? No. Probably just to some executive somewhere, but yeah. um, I do feel that there's an honesty about it that also helps with the creative thing. Like what I was saying of when we get the superpowers and we get to accomplish the impossible, I think there's also an honoring of if you're not just hemorrhaging money for no reason. That yeah. just feels... Yeah. And I, and there's something really it's nice about stupid. saying... Like, it's stupid money. money. It's like your canvas is only this big. What are you going to do? You know, sometimes that's the better way to go. And a lot of it is because I came from the theater. And when I was doing my theater days, we sent letters in the mail to people in Oregon who didn't have any money, who would send us like $25 or $50 or on occasion, a hundred bucks. And we'd be like, oh my God, this is incredible. <laughs> and there was a real, like, this person sent me a hundred dollars. Like this is, and they don't have it. You know, this, I mean, they have it because they gave it to us, but this isn't someone who's just like, yeah, sure, whatever. You know, I'm going to a fundraiser tonight. Right. Like they're going to fundraisers. They're like raising money for their school, for their children or something like that. And I try to think of it that way. I forget what that quote is about. Limit crazy. Limitations makes art. I forget what the quote is now. Damn, something like limitations enhances art or the creative art. I forget it. See that? That martini did me in. <laughs> I know what you're driving at, and I agree. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I look at, like, I think of Jack White from White Stripes and his yeah. own stuff, who I think is a wonderful musician. Recorded an album in two weeks for some reason, for no reason, you know, other than why not? You know, yeah. like he's an artist. He can yeah. limit himself. There's no reason he could have taken two years if he wanted to, I think. I mean, I don't know the guy. I'm sure <laughs> but, he could uh, do anything he wants. <laughs> I just sort of think of like, well, fuck yeah, man. You know, it's sort of a theater already is limited because the space is only so small or big. And uh, I mean, I haven't directed on Broadway, so it's never been like a cavernous thing I've been involved with. But it's like, OK, you've got what do you put in the frame and in yeah. whether it's in theater or an actual frame of filmmaking. If your frame, you want the best stuff in the frame. Yeah. And if you can't afford a bigger frame, don't do the bigger frame. I once I was on this move, this uh, like a limited series called uh, Spoils of Babylon and it had no money, like no money. And it was the like the last setup of the last one. And the DP was amazing. I can't think of his name, of course. But um, he, he was great. And it all was great. And director uh, Matt was great. And they were only supposed to shoot this one corner. And, you know, the, the lens went this way. And, he, and the DP's like, so we need something. And I go, I don't have an ounce to give I don't have anything I don't have anything I am begging you just to just to keep yeah. it was like a woman at a desk typing and they wanted to use this whole big wall instead of the corner that we dressed and I was like I'm begging you to just 
keep it small. <laughs> like, usually I go, keep yeah. it wide. But please, I don't have anything. Like, it broke me. Like, I was like, all I have is a tree. I got nothing. <laughs> like, I got a rubber plant over there that we've used in seven different sets. It seemed like <laughs> it's the only rubber plant we have. Please just make the shot smaller. And they were like, all right, Kim, we get it. I was like, okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that kind of stuff is often the best way to go. Like, when I was saying Fargo was is a, a tight budget, I re- remember in season two, there was a scene when they're going to the theater. There's a big shooter in a theater. And oh, it's a yeah. kid looking at it. And then later, it's that kid, Dodd, driving and... Uh, his nephew was in the car with him yeah. and we just did not have the time. It was like, you get one setup to shoot this, you know, like where is the camera going to go? And I thought we should be on the boy and we should only see the father from the boy's point of view mm. because this is the story. I mean, it was already there for me, you know, yeah. of course I would shoot like both sides and all the things that we could, but we didn't have the time. And so it's the kind of thing that's like, what is the stripped down version that, is the essential part of the story. And then when we advanced in time, I did the same setups because it was like, now Dodd, we don't get, we, formerly we had the kid shot and now we only see him from the point of view of the younger person. Yeah. And I thought, to me, this is the story. We're talking generations and all these kinds of things. Right. That sort of thing, like, obviously you always want more time to shoot things, but it's nice to have, those kinds of limitations are well served if the script and the story are as solid as they are on something like Fargo and on most of the shows I've been fortunate enough to work on. Yeah. And it's just made me a better filmmaker because all I really care about is the story. And so you can usually make it happen if the story's good enough. Yeah. I can't think of a time where I thought, well, we didn't get it. You know, like we didn't, the budget, the time screwed us. And actually at the end of the day, we don't have the story. I can't think of a time when we had that. Maybe it could have been better or something, but I can't think of a failure on that level. And it's because of all the collaborators I get to work mm-hmm. with and because of the, the root script and story being strong enough, which is why I wanted to do the job and why I still love doing it. Yeah. I would have to say that I'm I'm a better decorator having done this project, the... Um, impeachment that we're on now and I a lot of that is due to to the production designer Jamie it's due to Simon and it's and it is due to you working with you over I think you've done like four episodes of this all together I think four or five four and it's yeah it's a big it's a big difference working on something this huge with people that are good <laughs> and all get along because like we were saying like with a dp it, it sometimes they're good and they're they're not nice people sometimes they're nice people and they're not good same thing with anyone with a designer or anything like there's plenty of people i want to have drinks with but i never want to work with them again <laughs> so yeah no, it's an interesting thing yeah but this i feel like oh at least i know i can go to jamie or at least i know i can talk to simon about these lamps or at least i like i feel like i can have a dialogue with you about like what are we going to do here and what makes sense and what are we going to see so it's it's very nice in that sense to have this huge show and be able to have that you know collaboration i i enjoy it's it's one of the few things i'm enjoying on this show but it's (laughs) it is great i do love it i can't deny it 
So yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Lucky. Yeah. Lucky. Okay. We're lucky. All right. We're lucky. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you how lucky I feel to have even just known what I wanted to do as a child and then to be able to do it. It's like, yeah, it is. But it's talent and time. It's your timing and your talent running into opportunity. Yeah. If you, you if you had had a shit play, if you had invited Ted Dance into a shit play, he wouldn't have hired you. It's talent and no, timing. No, I agree. I'm not, I'm just saying luck is important, but yeah, I agree. Yeah. You gotta have the goods. You gotta work yeah. and make sure that it's, you're developing as an artist yeah. all the time. I'm, I'm sure you got to get back to work as I saw I probably have like six emails already today. <laughs> um, thank you for giving me two hours. <laughs>I really enjoyed this conversation with Michael because he's so down to earth and really has this passion for directing that I think he conveyed very eloquently. I definitely have found him to be so approachable with decorating questions when we're scouting or shooting and um, in the little time that I've been able to chat with him when we're scouting or we're supposed to be working, um, he has an enormous amount of film knowledge and which I just love to geek out with someone like to just start a sidebar about you know an old movie or how great was that and then it leads to this and oh when did you see her in this and I love that um I actually had wanted to bring up in this conversation um but I get so nervous <laughs> sometimes um but one day when we were scouting him and I were talking about like movies that remind you of other movies and blah 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 and he he pointed out that that series The Flight Attendant is really kind of just an, a remake of The Morning After with Jane Fonda from the 80s which I was like oh my god you're so right like it's completely a ripoff and I mean only people who are super into like older films and I don't know you make these connections all the time like I think about shots that directors take all the time of how did how was that influenced or you know getting performances out of people so yeah things like that I I, I just want to let you know I thought that was a genius observation about the flight attendant um and I mean Jane Fonda is so so good in the morning after she's so good drunk but so good anyway those are the type of little things that made me happy. And so I knew that I wanted to have him on this podcast and share him with you because he's really nice and really awesome. And so again, um, I believe, I didn't even get to ask him, but I'm, I believe he's probably got three or four episodes probably submitting for Emmys. So please keep him in mind. He's really super talented. Yeah. I hope you got a near fall. I'm Kim Wanup for Decorating Pages. Do you have a bachelor or bachelorette party this summer? Forget the cigars and float on the stogie floaty luxury pool float. The perfect pool party present. Enter code THANKS10 on Etsy and get 10% off. Stogie floaty available now on Etsy and stogiefloaty.com.